This is Anthony and Areno, and you're listening to In the Arena. This episode of In the Arena was sponsored by Sales Gravy University. You know I'm good friends with Jeb Blunt, and you know he does great work, and you know he wrote Fanatical Prospecting, but you may not know that he created Sales Gravy University. And what is Sales Gravy University, you ask? And it's a great question. Sales Gravy University is sales training in your pocket. What you're going to get is an innovative training app that's going to help you accelerate your sales performance and improve your income, and it's in your pocket. It's on your phone, whether that's an iPhone or an Android phone. You can go out to the iTunes store and download the app, or you can go to the Play Store and download the app there. Here's what you're going to get. You're going to get the platform when you sign up, and you're going to be able to buy what you want. There's going to be in-app purchases there for you. You can purchase some courses for 99 cents, and that might be a short video, a tutorial, or an audio program. You're also going to find something that costs more. I think I have a program on there for $9.99, and it's how to plan a sales call. It's four modules. It's probably close to 25 minutes long, and it's content to help you set up success when you're going to do the most important thing that salespeople do, and that's go sit down face-to-face with a client or a prospect. Here's what I love about this platform, and this is where I think Jeb's genius comes in. This is spot training. So you're in your car. You've got a problem. You're going to go out. You're going to watch a video. You're going to read a tutorial, or you're going to listen to an audio track, and you're going to come up with the ideas that you need to succeed when you're sitting down with that customer. Or maybe this is part of your personal development and your growth, and you're going to listen to one module every week, and you're going to work on that module, and then the next week, you're going to pick up something else and grow from there. Go check out Sales Gravy University. You can Google it, and you'll come up with the iTunes preview as the second link. You'll also find the link in the show notes or go out to the Play Store and search for Sales Gravy. I promise there's nothing else in the world called Sales Gravy and only a Southerner like Jeb Blunt who rides horses and eats steak and probably drinks whiskey is going to call something Sales Gravy because to a Southerner, nothing is real unless you can put gravy on it. Go check it out. When you get there, tell Jeb that I sent you and do check out the sales call planning module there. I think you'll love it and I think that you're going to find it super helpful when you go in to make a sales call. A number of years ago, I took a test called Open Book and it's from Open Book Consulting and I was turned on to Frank Sopper and his work through David Allen and GTD. And if you're not familiar with David Allen and GTD, go check out the show notes and take a look at that process for managing your tasks in every area of your life. Well, David interviewed Frank, and I listened to the interview, and I was intrigued, and I took this test from Open Book Consulting. And then a few weeks ago, I had 
a call with Frank where he explained my cognitive style based on my test results. And you can be either associative or you can be sequential. And none of that means anything to you now, but you are using your brain in one of these systems at all times. And for some people, it's easier to work in one system than another system. And that's how you process information and how you communicate. And for some people, it's easier to switch back and forth between those systems. So this is something very different, and it's something that's very important. And if you're into neuroscience, and if you're into producing better results by learning more about yourself and being introspective and understanding, you're going to love this interview with Frank. First off, he's super interesting. He's a very, very bright individual, and he's doing really, really important work, and he's at the cutting edge of how we think and what that means for us in business and in life. So with no further ado, Open Book Consulting, Frank Sopper in the arena. Hi, Frank. How are you this morning? I'm great. Thank you. Beautiful day here. And uh, I'm in Boston today, so bright and sunny and warm. (laughs) And where did you travel from? I started out in uh, just north of Brattleboro, Vermont, but I'm only a mile from the New Hampshire border. So I went across New Hampshire, picked up my mother, who just had her 86th birthday yesterday, and brought her down to my daughter's house in Boston. So That's an amazing accomplishment, 86 <laughs> years. Yeah, no, it's pretty cool. She's kind of surprised to still be around, but <laughs> we're, we're happy with that. No, no doubt about it. And what do you have planned for the birthday? Family get together? Yeah, it's really it's really close family. So, and my daughter is hosting, which is nice. She works down here for Boston University, and her grandmother hadn't seen her place yet. So, this is kind of fun for everybody. Very nice. Well, let me ask you to introduce yourself. You're a person who does something that's difficult to talk about. So, if I were to say he's a doctor or he's a plumber or he's a pilot, people know what that means. What is it exactly that you do? Sure. Well, I I work on the edge of how we understand, how we process information and how we, you know, how we as humans process information and how we as humans transfer it from one to another. So I've been involved in this since the early 80s, and I've got an unusual place that I have, I've always had one foot in research and one foot in practice. So I've I'm doing the work on how we understand how we think and learn while I've been a teacher, a school administrator, a college administrator. And now the bulk of my work is actually running an educational software company. So I'm actually running a business at the same time I'm working with people who are running businesses and trying to think about how they think while they're running businesses. So I've always had that one foot in the research and one foot always actually trying to do the thing that I'm studying. So it gives me a little bit of humility on on a good day and (laughs) also gives me quite a bit of confidence. It's a sort of metacognition. So it's thinking yeah. about, and you're maybe even double that, thinking about thinking about what you're thinking about. Right. <laughs> that's probably a very good one. Yes. And, and yeah, so that, that's the part that makes this sort of a tough path to follow. But I took your survey because I found your work through David Allen's company. Mm-hmm. And I was fascinated by the insight that you gave me around my own thinking. And I, I want to dive into some of that. And I want to share what this could do for you if you were to understand what your preferences are, and then use those to do a better job thinking. So I want to ask you, let's start with cognitive preferences altogether. So we've got these systems, and I'm, I'm thinking about 
Kahneman's thinking fast and slow. We've got a fast yeah. system and a slow system. And you break that down into two component parts, associative and sequential. Will you talk about both of those systems and what's the difference between the associative processing that we do and the sequential? And then are we all doing these all the time? I mean, are we yeah. are we flipping back and forth between systems all the time? Yeah. So what we've come to understand at the beginning of the 21st century is the ability to separate how we think about things from how we feel about things. So up until the beginning of the 21st century, all of these personality inventories, psychoeducational inventories, all mix the psychological with the cognitive. And what we've been able to do with 21st century neuroscience is to be able to say, oh, yeah, this stuff is moving on this system and this stuff is moving on that system. So we've been able to look more closely at these information processing systems. So we've come to realize that we have two that do the bulk of the work of managing information for us. So that's what we're calling the associative and sequential. And Kahneman calls it thinking fast and slow. Aristotle called it a dyke and nomos. So it's an essential part of the human condition. And so we don't feel we really know anything Aristotle didn't know a few thousand years ago. But we've got a sharper look at it. We've drawn sharper lines on it. and We're able to measure it a little more closely. And so in short, our associative processor is the system that helps us manage what we call predictable randomness. It allows us to all the stuff that flies around us, most of it's predictable, but it shows up in random times. You know, this is what's happened when we drive down an interstate highway. Most of what's going to happen on that highway is predictable, but it's going to show up at random times. Brake lights will come on in front of you. The car next will, will drift too close. And so the associative processor allows us to really have a broad view of our context, what's going on around us, and bring our experience forward to rapidly be able to address that context piece. And then our sequential processor is designed to do something very different. It's designed to slow us down, hold our attention and focus to a point, and marshal the full weight of our attention and resources on that one thing. So for most of us, we experienced this at one point when we were in an exam room trying to solve a math problem. We needed the full weight of our attention right there. We wanted to screen out or ignore the person getting up to use the washroom who might in another context be highly interesting, but at this point we need that attention here. And it's also trying to hold our brain a little bit sticky so that we're not, our attention isn't drifting to thinking about what we're going to have for lunch today. And as a result of that, we really have a very different experience of the world when we're in one or within in the other. And yes, we all do all of them all the time. So when we're driving down the interstate highway, we're tracking the bird flying by, the rock bouncing in, the ball bouncing across the road while the radio's on, the cell phone's starting to ring. That's the associative processor. And then our sequential processor is tracking and getting off at exit 23. It's 12 miles away. At this rate of traffic flow, it's going to take me 10 minutes. When I get off at exit 23, I'm going to turn right, go three miles and four traffic lights and so on and so forth. So it's a system that slows us down. How do I know this? How am I going to do this? Now, at the same time that we're all doing all of them at the same time, or both of them you know, are necessary to us, First of all, we only can think one thought at a time. So we can either think an associative thought or we can think a sequential thought. So we do have to move back and forth. And we've learned we have something that's analogous to handedness. 
and that we tend to rely on one system or another for our first catch of information. So for associative preference, when something comes to our attention, typically the first thing we want to do is catch it, hold it, slow it down, understand how do I know this? How am I going to get this done? When we're associative preference, we want to catch it and sort of send it spinning. How does this fit in with everything else that's got my attention and focus? And what do I already know about it? Almost 60% of the population is sequential preference. Almost 40 is uh, associative preference. There's between 3% and 4% of the population who does have a kind of cognitive ambidextrousness. And that's a distinctive state on its own. Unless you're one of those cognitively ambidextrous people, we also tend to get sticky on our preferential side. So if uh, just the same way I'm right-handed, even though I'm perfectly capable of opening doors with my left hand and taking a glass from me with my left hand, I'm right-handed. So I'm going to reflexively use the right. I'm going to, I'm kind of sticky on that. Well, we get sticky in these cognitive preferences and then we develop them. We develop our preference in that place. And sometimes we can let the other side atrophy, even though we know our IQ is distributed across the whole range. Just the same way a professional athlete is a professional athlete in his or her right side or his or her left side. So I've watched right-handed professional soccer players make plays with their left feet that I couldn't make with my right hand. We can do that same thing cognitively. It's uh, cognitive ambidextrous. I've been telling everybody I've been cognitive amphibious now. For <laughs> tell me about, is the associative, is that way that we process information, is that something that allows us to do what humans do and generalize? So I can look and say, I've seen a doorknob before. I know how all doorknobs work. Or yeah. I've, I've been down this road before. And I know I, I can sense with the traffic, you know, what I'm supposed to do because I've seen all these things so many times. And what, what is that building on in the brain? I'm asking this because if you've driven for any period of time, you can be driving somewhere and end up at your office, even though that wasn't where you set as your mind, because that pattern is so deep. Right. Um, how does that association work? Is, is it generalization that we're doing there and trying to see some pattern? Yeah, no, that that's exactly right. And that's why the 40-year-old driver is typically a better driver than the 16-year-old driver, even though the 16-year-old driver might have better eyesight, better hearing, and better reflexes. The 40-year-old driver has this wellspring of experience that you're more quickly going to recognize that thing that's happening out in front of you. And then you're going to more quickly be able to upload the response to that because you've seen it before, you've done it before. So it's inside you. So that's the professional athlete who makes a play purely by muscle memory. It's that context and experience flowing into, into place, which is why we train for things, which is why we practice so that we get that stuff built into our experience so that when we're performing or delivering, boom, it's right there every time or most of the time. <laughs> what, where, is that what you're asking? Yeah. And what, what would be the analogy in the, the same way of the generalization and the driving to sequential? And sequential is when we understand the rules and processes. So the associative processor allows us to respond to that predictable randomness. And the associative processor allows us to envision what's next by kind of tweaking our experience a little bit to imagine what's going to be in the future. Our sequential processor helps us manage the rules and processes of complexity. So as you say, we're capturing something, slowing it down, 
We want to know, how do I know this? How am I going to get this done? So how do I know this is what evidence do I have for it? By contrast, a person who's associative preferent holds experience often as more powerful than evidentiary rules or evidentiary data. So I want to know what evidence, when I'm sequential preferent, I want to know what evidence I have for this. Then the next thing I want to know is by what authority did this come to me? Did this come to me from a colleague, a boss, a kid at the convenience store? Does engineering want this? Does the customer want this? Does the board want this? You know, so evaluating in that way. By contrast, someone who's associative preferent doesn't care if the information came from the boss or the kid at the convenience store. You just want to know, is it useful to me right now? And sometimes the kid gives me useful information and sometimes the boss doesn't. And then sequential wants to know what categories does this fit in? What resources am I going to need? How much time is this going to take? And then how do I get this done? What do I do first, second, third, fourth, and so on? What resources will I need to start? What resources will I need to accomplish the whole thing? How much time will my first action take? How much time will all the consequent actions take? How much time will this whole thing take? Why do you suspect that 60% of the population is sequential and 40% associative? Do you have a hypothesis as it pertains to the makeup of the general population? Well, yeah, that's really interesting. No, I really have kind of taken it the way it is, the way, you know, why are most of us right-handed, but a significant number of us are left-dominant and some of us are ambidextrous? No idea. And what's interesting is that in most endeavors, we see the skew maintained. So we see an equal number of sequential preferent lawyers and an equal number of associate preferent lawyers, even engineers, equal number, you know, people tend to think engineers are going to be more sequential, but it's it's still uh, 60-40? It's still 60-40 because some engineers are building bridges in environments that don't really have a precedent. My grandfather was a combat engineer in World War II. You know, he, he was building bridges under fire, you know, the slow things down, do this first, do this second, wasn't necessarily going to apply. No. So in short, don't know. Is there a sidedness? So we have this, and, and I think we're learning, you know way more about this than I do, but I think we're learning that we used to think the right hemisphere was exclusively mm. creative and the left hemisphere was exclusively logical. And we're starting to find out that that's not exactly right. It, it's not that mm. defined. Is, is some of this because I'm making a hypothesis now? So we tend to teach people in a way that's rules-based. We, we try to teach them the rules of grammar, the mm-hmm. rules of mathematics, and we spend more focus there than we do maybe on art and other things, as it could be it's what we're exposed to mostly through our formal education. Yeah, and that 60% dominance in the population does mean culturally that sequential preference is going to be a little bit more often rewarded. And again, most of us need to do both. So if you're learning to throw a ball, you know, you do get some specific instruction, hold it like this, move your arm like this, you know, release it like this. But then at some point, you know, it enters into muscle memory and enters into the associate preference. If you follow baseball, you remember a dozen or so years ago, uh, Chuck Noblock was a shortstop for the Yankees. And he suddenly went into, he's, so here he is, a professional athlete on the Yankees. He suddenly couldn't throw to first. And he went into this slump. And what had happened, it appears, is that his connection to that associative muscle memory somehow slipped 
and he was back in training mode and he was trying to throw the ball sequentially and respond in the, in, in the predictable randomness of a baseball game sequentially. And he had to get back into the associative. That's why uh, Susan Sarandon and Bull Durham had pitchers breathe through their eyeballs. You know? right. <laughs> yeah. right. So this is, this is because the, the sequential is the slow Re- yeah. response if you're if you're looking at Kahneman's thinking fast and slow and the associative is the intuitive piece of this that yeah. I have the muscle memory and I know what has to happen but if you're slowing down to think it through you're not going to get the ball to first base in time to to put anybody out yeah that's exactly what happened to him and that's often what we see when people go into slumps that they lose that attachment to the associative uh, and often it's for briefly, you know, it, it doesn't, it usually isn't forever, but you kind of slip back into training, you know, the slow focus training mode and lose that rapid access to that, what we can call instinct or intuition. And it really is that rapid integration of experience to match your context. So one of the things uh, on your website that I want to point to and talk about for a minute is you've got a section on the about page about what the brain is like, and you've described it as a community, a committee, <laughs> a jury, a Quaker meeting, a town hall forum, a barroom brawl. And it, you're talking about these systems. Is that talking about the switching between these and what, what that feels like? as an individual when you're going back and forth between sequential and associative? Yeah, because sometimes we can enter that, you know, still quiet place of a Quaker meeting or a Zen garden or a meditation session where you've got that beautiful, calm focus. And then very often we're of multiple minds. (laughs) So then when that's functioning well, it functions as a committee when we don't have control of it, it can function like a barroom brawl where we have all of these competing messages, competing signals, and it can really paralyze us. What's the cognitive load when you're switching back and forth? If I'm a sequential, if that's my preference, mm-hmm. is it tougher for me to be an associative? Is it tougher to go back and forth? Or can I be an associative and back to sequential without having any kind of, I guess, this kind of challenge that you're describing with your your analogies here? Yeah, the, the cognitively balanced people do move fluidly back and forth. 96% of the rest of the planet has one system or the other booted up just by default. So if I'm sequential preference, my sequential preference there, it's booted up, it's ready to go. When I need to think, associatively, I've got to let that system go dim and bring up the other one and boot up the other one. And so what typically happens is when associative information comes to us and we're sequential preference, we keep trying to keep it in our sequential framework. The only way we get over to the associative is if someone asks us a question or we ask ourselves a question that gets us over into the associative side. So David Allen actually has two questions that activate one side or the other. When when David wants people to think associatively, he says, what's got your attention? So all of a sudden, now your sequential processor has to go dim and your associative processor has to light up to address that. Well, what is going on around me? What are all the things that are happening in my world that I care about or, or should have my attention on or want to have my attention on? And then when we're associative preference, 
you know, we love that world of being in, you know, working off our instincts and our experience and moving forward with a great deal of rapidity and cognitive flexibility. And so when someone says, how long is this going to take? You know, then you has yeah. to go to, yeah. And David's question to activate that side is, what's your next action? So if someone asks you, what's my next action? Well, what is that one thing that I have to do? And then well, you see them. You're starting the sequence. You're, yeah. you're, you're starting to make a decision about what has to happen and in what order. So we're, yeah. we're picking our preference and our outcome there. Is this something that if you're in, in my world, in the world of sales, or let's just say in business in general, is this something that is useful in understanding communication? I mean, if you're picking up that somebody's sequential, and you know, let me give you a more direct question. We've been told for years the PowerPoint deck should not have certain things on it. It should be images and metaphors and association because that's the part of people we're trying to draw in. And I think that's probably right. If I'm Al Gore and I'm doing a big presentation to get you to think about the environment and I'm standing on the stage. But in another situation where I'm trying to influence somebody, I just wonder if they're sequential and I recognize that they're sequential and I'm giving a metaphor and analogy and metaphor and they're looking for what order does this need to happen in? Why would right. we do this in this way? How does this get done? Am I sort of speaking to the wrong preference for them and making it more difficult for them to come along with me? Yeah, that's a good analogy because if Al Gore is trying to get people, this is what's going on, you know, we need yeah. your attention on all these things, then that's exactly right. And then if he wants, okay, what do I do about this? <laughs> that's when you're, okay, you know, here's step one. This has actually been explored in some very interesting ways that there's a great article in the Journal of Marketing Psychology where they looked at both, you know, do we present images? Do we present flowcharts? Do we present diagrams? And it turns out that no matter what our cognitive preference is, if we get exposed to both an associative image type experience and then a sequential, this is what you do next, we're much more likely to make a purchase decision. Interesting. And as some people are doing it really well. I, I opened up the New York Times Sunday Magazine a year or two ago, and there was an advertisement for some posh apartments on Park Avenue. And double page spread, one side was the secret garden in this apartment on a perfect spring day. <laughs> so in the middle of the chaos of Manhattan, you said, this is the experience I'm going to have with this beautiful garden. And then it had the schematic of the apartment. It had a little compass rose so you could see where the light was coming in. And here's how you find us. You know, here's the number to call. Here's the person to contact. You know, here. And um, absolutely brilliant. Cologne ads have, have been doing this uh, for a while. So it's hard to sell cologne in print. So what happens is it's always two pages. First page is the fertility deity you will either become or be able to date if you use this cologne. And then you flip the side and then it shows you the product available in lotion spray, what have you, two, five fluid ounces available at Nordstrom's Macy's and other fine stores. And here's how you get it. And then on the evidence side, on the sequential side, which is the evidence side, that's where the strip is, where you smell it. The strip is never on the associative side. It's always on the evidence side. It's always on the sequential side. Is the sequencing of that by itself important? So I want to get you associative first because I'm going to get a more of a, I'm connecting this to emotional things and experiences, and then I'm going to tell you how to do it. 
And what's interesting with the way magazines design their ads, when you're when you're flipping it in one direction, you know, that page shows up. When you're flipping it in the other direction, the other page shows up. So they're really trying to get you to, uh, depending on how you're flipping it, which is going to be your first presentation, it's beautiful if you can do what, what they did in the New York Times, buy a full double page spread in yeah. the Times and have one side and the other side. That's uh, Most of us don't have the resources to do that all the time. But it is important to see both. And so if I were doing it and I had taken a read already of whether the person's associate preference or not, and there's lots of ways to do that. You start to ask them questions and uh, associative preference person, you know, what's your day like? Associate preference person, I'm going to reveal myself, tells you about, oh, it was my mother's birthday yesterday and here I am with my family and all the things that are going on in my life. Where a sequential preference person would tell you, well, this morning I started in Brattleboro and I had to drive 50 miles here and then I and that took me this long and then I did 50 miles, another 50 miles here and that took me that long. So you start to listen to people and you can start to assess where they are. And so if I'm trying to influence an associative preference, first I'm going to show them that beautiful garden and then I'm going to show them how you, you know, the evidence and then how you get there. And then I would do the flip side with the other person. We see this in presentations to doctors. Now, when I said we don't generally see a skew in professions, medical doctors is the one place we see skew. 90% of the medical doctors we work with are sequential preferent. So we've seen this when drug company executives present to doctors. When doctors present to each other, the first part of the presentation is everybody's bona fides. You know, here's where we all went to school. Here's our board certification. Here's this. Okay, here's the research protocol we use. This is the this is the rule and process we use. This is how we chose the results. And then at the very end is what's called the Kaplan-Meier slide. It shows the graph of how the control group performed and how the research group performed. And if they're the same, then nothing happened. If the intervention goes above, then that's when you make a a billion dollars. If it goes below, that's when you have to shut down your project. Doctors don't present that Kaplan-Meier slide until the very end. The drug companies were presenting the Kaplan-Meier slide at the beginning because that's the money shot. That's how you know know, whether the rest of it is even worth knowing. (laughs) But the doctors would be outraged. You're trying to bias us right from the start. Yeah. No, we're just trying to give you the main idea right from the start. So you know whether you want to sit for two hours here or, you know, or, or go out for coffee. But yeah, you really have to know your audience. <laughs> yeah, and that's, I mean, I've heard people say you don't want to show people how to make a cake. You just want to show them the cake. Right. <clears throat> and that's not necessarily true. I mean, right. it, it, it's not necessarily true. Let me ask you about some language that's on the website about situational learning disabilities. So mm-hmm. what what is a situational learning disability? And and if you could talk about this both ways, we're going to give people a code. So if they want to come out and figure out what their preferences are, they get a, a discount to do that. And it would be really, sure. if you're into this kind of understanding yourself and how to produce better results, it's absolutely worth spending the time and money to do. But if I think I'm sequential, what are my potential situational learning disabilities? If we can be that broad and if I'm associative, what are they for me? Sure. People at the at the far end of the sequential scale, typically when they're feeling, if they're losing control of the management of it, they'll get diagnosed as obsessive compulsive. 
because you really, you know, when you're feeling out of control in your sequential preference, you really just want this and this and this. And did I do this and this and this? And then on the flip side, the associative, when you start to lose control of it, you get diagnosed as attention deficit disorder. In our culture, because sequential preference is the dominant, you have to get pretty OCD before people start to feel you can't function. There, there are a lot of roles for people who have that tight focus. We call people attention deficit much earlier in our culture. It makes us nervous much sooner. I've had the hypothesis, which is actually getting played out now, that if um, that if 60% of the population were associative preferent, We'd be giving sequential preference kids a quarter tab of acid in the morning instead of a instead of some methylphenidate the way we do for associative preference kids. Actually, in Silicon Valley, I understand people are taking microdoses of, yes. uh, of hallucinogens to to activate, and that's exactly how it works. The amphetamine class drugs wake up our sequential processor. So caffeine is the you know, the lowest form, uh, actually highly effective, wakes up the sequential processor. My favorite thing on earth is coffee. Yeah. Methylphenidate is the next level. Both of them are pretty safe. Dexedrine works beautifully. In one of the Ian Fleming novels, when James Bond had to play a high stakes poker game, he ordered uh, some dexedrine from the chemist so that he would have a high level of focus. The equivalent now of people taking like modafinil and Adderall and things like that for the, the focus, is that just yeah. uh, that's yeah, to activate no. the sequential? We've had this medical model where you have to be disordered to get them. Well, they're performance-enhancing substances, and they get tricky. Dexedrine is really tricky. You can get addicted to that really fast. Caffeine, if even if you drink it all the time, it's actually looks it's bean soup. Apparently, it's it's healthful. So, um, so you do need to be careful with it. But they're performance enhancers, and we may find that small doses of hallucinogens, you know, tightly controlled, you know, and pure <laughs> FDA approved, may in fact be performance enhancers. And so, I'd much rather see them that way than thinking that the deficit model. One neuroscientist said our strengths and weaknesses come out of the same well. What makes it easier for us to do one thing makes it harder for us to do others. There's no ideal state. And there's not very many disordered states. You know, if it's well-managed, well-controlled, and you're in the right space, it's not a disability. Because of the way that this is drawn up on your reports, I've made it mutually exclusive. You are associative or you're sequential, but it's a continuum, right? And so you're, you're somewhere on there as a continuum, and you can move back and forth. Let me ask you to talk through one part of my particular report that you gave me. I am surrounded by books. Mm -hmm. I read read every single day of my life. I've read since I was a kid and I love books. And I showed up as a low reader. Mm -hmm. And and one of the things that struck me very high on the talker, which I wasn't surprised to, to find out, was that I believe that I enjoy reading. And then I, I read this Most of the time, you'll be scanning for actionable information, skimming key passages to find what you need, and saving deeper word-for-word reading for more salient text. And that's the part that struck me because I majored in English literature, and I probably haven't read nonfiction, or a fiction book, rather. I only read nonfiction now. Mm -hmm. And after I read that, I thought, you know what? I am a low reader And maybe it's because my style, I am strictly searching for what's the actual insight? What am I learning? What can I do? And it it will cause me to 
move past a lot of passages that I've already, okay, I got that, I got that, I got that, where's the next thing? Mm -hmm. uh, what is that? And if you could describe those attributes, because I ended up being five things, and I don't know what the opposite of the, those things are. I ended, sure. up being, <laughs> I ended up being a listener, an observer, a talker, a low reader, and a mover. So are there opposites, like a non-listener, a non-mover, <laughs> or is it just a, it's just a lower score on each of those categories? Yeah. Well, I also share that low reader or what I prefer to call a selective reader. I'm, my score was 23 out of 100. I don't re remember exactly what yours was. 39. But, right. But my my house looks like what I see yours. I, I'm full of books, uh, read all the time and have a great curiosity of stuff that can only be satisfied by text. What it means, though, the reader score represents the neurostimulus we activate when we activate that system. So the one that's obvious to most people is mover. When we activate our striated muscles that move our skeleton, we generate a neurostimulus. So that's what marathon runners 50 years ago started talking about a runner's high. And so we learned, yeah, our bodies create this compensatory neurostimulus to help us get through exhausting and difficult neuromuscular tasks. So it actually calms us and focuses us. You know, we've been calling them endorphins. It's, you know, kind of a general term for it. It's a little more complicated than that. But in any case, it's a self-produced neurostimulus that activates when we activate our skeletal muscles. Well, people have different levels of that. So some people get a very high level of activation when, they, when they're in motion. Some people get a very low level of neurostimulus in, in motion. So I work with a top-level athlete who's actually low on the mover scale. Now, he's a very high-level athlete. What's that about? Well, he's a goalie. So in the chaos of a hockey game, he's completely still, and his movements are, are completely purposeful. He doesn't have any fidget or flinch reflex. Every one of his movements is purposeful. So now let's go to reader. Reader is the, that endorphin-like stimulus we get when we decode text. So when we are, I search and find a letter or word, identify that letter as a word as a symbol, identify that symbol as a sound. It's a three-step neurological process. For some of us, we get a compensatory neurostimulus that makes that neurological task a little easier. So I work with a contract attorney who's an 80 listener. And she told me when she gets a little fatigue in the afternoon, she goes into her office with a stack of contracts and literally gets buzzed. She gets a runner's high from processing contracts. You and I aren't getting that. No, not so much. <laughs> uh, but we can get activated by the content. So if the content is high value, high interest, or high utility, that's what activates us. That's what motivates us to read. And that's what keeps us moving through the text. But for me, as soon as the author gets a little bit weak, <laughs> or the writing gets a little weak or a little rambling, I lose interest. Have I sent you the reference to Pierre Bayard? I don't know that you have. Bayard is a professor of literature at the University of Paris. He's a renowned scholar. And the English title of his most recent book is How to Talk About Books You Haven't Read. And he's absolutely deadly serious. He's rocked the academic world with this because he, he is absolutely a top-level scholar. But he's making the point that neuroscience is known for decades 
that reading something from the first word, the second word, the third word to the last word is actually pretty inefficient because we're forgetting as fast as we're reading almost. He called, Bjerg calls it unreading. So that none of us closes a book and then recites the book from first word, second word, third word, last word. So we are just saying, why are we doing this? Why aren't we sampling books? Why aren't we skimming books? Why aren't we reading the summaries of books? Why aren't we reading the reviews of someone who's gone through this in great detail? Why aren't we watching the author's talk on YouTube? Well, yes, we are doing those things, but we somehow feel that those are lesser forms of intellectual activity. Well, we're trying to get the information in an actionable, usable way. However, you can extract it. <laughs> That's why I I don't ever have trouble if if fifty pages in, I've got what I need. I'm done, yeah. and I'm fine with that. And if I pick up and I skip from chapter to chapter, I'm fine with that. Yeah, because I'm I'm and I do scan and I do read enough, and yeah, and, and I'm okay with it. Yeah, and you're more likely to actually remember what you've read well, <laughs> than if you'd read it from first word, second word, third word, the last word. And maybe that's just because I'm hunting. You know, what, yeah. what, what's the truth yeah. in here? What's the useful bit of this? Yeah, and the whole point of knowledge is that we have something meaningful and actionable. And so if it doesn't stay with us in a meaningful and actionable way, well, you know. <laughs> Let's talk for just a couple minutes about what you could get out of knowing what your preferences are. How do you get an improvement in your, your life and your results by knowing how your brain works? And I mean, that th- we can talk about your survey. We can also talk about, I mean, reading Kahneman, just to even understand yeah. you have two systems and, and recognizing this is slow and this is fast. And there's a certain mm-hmm. thing I need to bring to those in the world of distraction that we live in now. I mean, there has never been a time where we've been so distracted Right. And where focus is so difficult, I've written about this a number of times that I think the new currency for professionalism is going to be the ability to give someone your full focus and attention and to read long form content. And I, I mean, those two things are going to probably be a rarity that makes you what, what will look to some people like you have superpowers <laughs> because you can focus for more than 14 seconds. What do you get out of knowing this and how do you benefit from it? For me, it allows me to move through the world and recognize how I'm catching stuff. So what I'm seeing, and I have a, an awareness that I'm going to be missing certain things. And so I surround myself with people in my organization and kind of in my life generally with people who are seeing things differently. We can be standing in the same place, but our cognitive preferences cause us to take a different sample of what's out there. And so I'm taking a sample and the person sitting next to me is looking at the same thing, but they're taking a different sample of it. Well, I'm kind of curious about what sample you're taking. And when I'm trying to make important decisions, I want it to be with people who are making a different sample. When I'm trying to do business work, you know, influence people in my business or or if I want to talk to people who have a, a different sample. And then if I am trying to influence somebody, first of all, I want to recognize what kind of sample they're taking. And then if I want them to look at something a little differently, I know that I'm going to start with a question and a question that activates their off processor. And then I'm going to wait for the that processor to dim and the other processor to, to come up and you watch it. You can actually see it happening. And then we'll be in the same place. Otherwise, we're going to be in completely contradictory places. I worked with a big tech organization where they were really wrestling with some decisions. And 
they wanted to do it by consensus. They're all partners at the leadership level, or even if they were literal partners, they considered themselves so. And they were really wrestling with it. So the CEO said, Frank, I want to have this discussion and I want you to chair the meeting (laughs) because I'd I'd worked with them all over time. And I went in and the first morning I, I realized, okay, we have associative sequential imbalance in the room. And they're saying the same thing, but they're using different metaphors. And they're arguing over the metaphors rather than the content. So that afternoon, we bring that to the surface. They look around and then boom, they started to resolve the issue. I was supposed to be there for three days. I left after a day and a half. They were done. You know, they, had to, they got it. Really bright people. We were just in, everybody's in their, you know, sample. They had to, oh, okay. <laughs> let, me, let me ask you this. If I'm going to simplify this if I can, and I, I'm prepared to be wrong, but I'm going to try this anyway. <laughs> if I'm working on something like that, is the why question going to lead to more of the associative thinking? Why should we do this? Why are we doing this? Why do we have to change? And then the sequential more of the what do we do and the how do we do? Well, it, that's interesting. The why when you ask why, someone's sequential preference says, because here's the data. And someone who's associative said, here's the experience. Here's our experience. Here's ours. Here's our competitors. Here's what's going on in our industry. Here's what our customers are saying. Where someone who's sequential preference is doing polling and focus groups and testing. And, and so the why goes to a very different, yeah, can go to a very different place. Okay. How we process that why question could be based on our preference. Yeah, exactly. Now, what was the first part of that question? Well, I I just wondered, if I ask you why, am I causing you to think about your experience? And if I ask you what and how, am I getting more into, well, how? Now we have to, well, first we would do this, and second we would do that, and then this would make sense. So I'm wondering if those types of questions force you down a different path, or or like you've said, dim one, turn the other one on. One of the first things I do when we're trying to work something out in a group is I'll write context, experience, rule, and process up on a whiteboard. You're going to cover all your bases. Yeah. And then, you know, and as people start talking about things, I'll start dropping them into the categories, as they've said. Then you see the gaps and then you see who's all about rule and process and who's all about context experience. And then you can start to, oh, okay, you know, you're really not stupid. You're looking at something different, you know, or you're, yeah. I mean, we tend to think that the person who has the opposite cognitive preference is not as smart or or, or aware or or as moral as we are. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's a, a worthwhile point to make. You can be a really smart person in either preference. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's no question. And David Allen, if I'm correct, who I think is a a brilliant guy, is associative. Yeah. And I would have put him in sequential because he creates GTD, which is a giant set of rules, you know, but his association is what allowed him to discover the pattern to write the rules about. So it's not like if you're associative, you can't get over to sequential. You can. It's just a different, it's a different place for you. I've been following the career of a baseball player, Pat Venditti Jr. Pat was born right-handed. His father was a baseball coach, took this young man and was determined to make him a switch pitcher and trained his left side and actually had the, had the kid play soccer for a while. So he got the whole body 
thing going. And Affendidi Jr., as far as I can tell, is the only person to throw strikes in the major leagues with both hands. He has actually developed as a switch pitcher. David Allen is cognitively, you know, has that, you know, Pat Fendini Jr. will tell you he's right-handed. He didn't become ambidextrous. And David Allen will tell you he's associative, but he can function on that sequential side. At a high level. Now, what's interesting is when I find someone like that, I'll often ask them about their upbringing. And I said, what do you think your parents were like? And David said, my mother was very sequential. (laughs) So he had it all modeled for him. And he had that value put out there for him. And I'm sure... All of the other events in his life played into that. But often those formative experiences of having those things modeled and seeing it makes us more aware of it. I'm going to go through my speed round of questions with you, which you were not prepared for in any way. So um, what what are you reading right now? I'm reading, uh, it was actually recommended by Pierre Bayard, The uh, Man Without Qualities. Bayard said it was the best book he's ever read. He's the person who want you to talk about books you haven't read. He's read the whole thing from cover to cover, and it's nearly 2,000 pages. It's a wow. cultural history of Austria before the uh, First World War. <laughs> so, so, yeah, and I'm really moving through it, you know, piece by piece by piece. You know? It's only 2,000 pages for a low reader. Right, exactly. Yeah. But this guy, he's right. The, every sentence is amazing. So... If I only read three or four sentences a day, you know, I've I've gotten some amazing insights. Give, give, <laughs> to, me, give me the name again so I can take it down. It's The Man Without Qualities. And the author is Robert Musil, who's one of those people like J.D. Salinger, who didn't write a lot. You know, he wrote this one significant thing. And it's one brilliant sentence after another. And it's insightful. You know, it's almost Shakespearean. And it's insight into the human condition. Interesting. What's the most important book you've ever read and why? I keep going back to the Odyssey. I'm uh, watching you process this. Why? Yeah. Talking. yeah. <laughs> you looked straight up to find it. Yeah, that's interesting. Sometimes I close my eyes, too. It's, and why uh, the Odyssey? Again, it's this amazing insight into the human condition. You know, the, the, the characters are just so rich and human and dynamic and all of the conflicts and all of the things that we wrestle with as humans, uh, a good part of it is there. And then it's also pretty funny. (laughs) Um, So Homer really had sort of this comic look at the human condition too. I'm always fascinated by books that last, you know, thousands of years. It's interesting. And they always tend to have some giant truth that doesn't change much even over millennia. Yeah. And and that's that book. Who's had the biggest influence on your thinking? I worked for a headmaster at a private school in Los Angeles, the Buckley School, Walter Baumhoff. My kids will tell you that I keep talking about him. He's approaching 90 now, but the man was wise and smart and, and, to my view, an absolutely brilliant leader. And my understanding of how to manage teams and large groups of people and a complex situation. The school, we had 800 kids between four years old and 18 years old in one place, which is complex, right, as it is. And then we had a couple of hundred faculty. And it was one of the top schools in Los Angeles. So these kids' parents are recognizable names. You know, I could could drop names all day long off off of this parent list. 
And so it was complex and you could blow this up really easily. And Walter was brilliant. And if this goes out in the podcast, I, I don't know if it'll have somebody scrub the reference from it because he maintains a very, very private life. But I, so I hope he doesn't mind that I said in public that he was a very, very influential person for me. Well, you said nice things, but we'll leave him out of the show notes. What What's the most important lesson you've learned in life up to this point? It's how wrong it's possible for me to be to uh to think i t.s Eliot talks about in the four quartets of what he calls the rending pain of reenactment of things done and done to others harm which once you took as exercise of virtue <laughs> i got a couple of those where i thought i was exercising virtue and i was really wrong <laughs> it's sort of the pogo thing right we've found the enemy and he is us yeah yeah <laughs> always always we're at the root of our problems if you weren't doing what you were doing right now, what would you be doing? What would be your job? What would you spend your time doing? Sure. Uh, because I did this for a little bit. I, I would be writing a magazine feature stories. So I'd be interviewing people like you're doing. Maybe I'd be doing podcasts. Maybe I'd be doing print because I used to do print interviews. And when I wasn't doing that, I'd be building stone walls because I'm, I need that high mover activation as well. So. <laughs> and that gives you another sort of reward. Yeah. What do you hope to be remembered for, especially as it pertains to the work you're doing now? That's interesting because I, I actually don't have a lot of attachment around being remembered. I do have attachment about putting this work out so that maybe even in 30 or 40 years, this is embedded in how everybody sees the world without even knowing where it came from. There's an Italian statistician, he's, he said, Caleb Catenio, who actually, he did the work on how we understand the world. He did really important work in the early part of the 20th century on how we represent information visually. And then that got picked up by Edward Tufte and others no one, I know Caleb Catenio's name. You'll talk to, you, you won't find many people who do. Tufty's a real yeah, reference tough. already. So, yeah, 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 he's already passed by. So, but we all represent visual information according to what Catenio taught us, even though we don't know it. So I'd be satisfied if that happened. <laughs> it's a big, it's a big goal, but I think yeah. that under, more understanding of ourselves and how we process information would help in, in just about everywhere in every area of life, especially education and, and understanding different people have different ways that they activate. And we don't tend to teach or train to the different things yeah. that activate people. You know, we sit them in a room and put up a slide deck and talk to them, yeah. you know, and if they're a mover, a reader, maybe a high preference, you know, we're, we're doing exactly the wrong thing for that individual. So, all right, well, maybe not exactly the wrong thing, but maybe we're not getting as much out of that interaction for them as we could. Frank, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate this. Yeah. And thanks yeah, for sharing no, this with everyone. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, best wishes for your Saturday. I hope you loved that interview as much as I loved doing it. I learned so much from Frank, and I'm so happy that I got a chance to spend some time with him, both individually after taking the test and doing a little bit of work, having him interpret my results, as well as this interview. So it's awesome. There is a discount code for you in the show notes. So if you want to take the open book test yourself, I encourage you to go out and do that. You will learn something. And you can find a Frank and his work at openbooklearning.com. That will also be in the show notes. 
I'm Anthony Anarino. You can find me at thesalesblog.com. When you go there, do sign up for my Sunday newsletter, and it will be hard for you not to because a little banner is going to pop up and bother you while you're reading the blog. Also, join me at YouTube, youtube.com forward slash Anarino. And when you're there, do subscribe. And until then, I will see you next time in the arena. There's never been a better time to be a salesperson or a success-minded individual in human history. We now have in our hands more tools, more technology, and more insight available to us than ever before. I'm proud to announce our new sponsor for this episode of In the Arena, Jeffrey Gittimer and Gittimer Gold Webinars, The Year of the Sale. And what is The Year of the Sale and Gittimer Gold Webinars? Here's what you're going to get. You're going to get 12 webinars. You're going to get a full year of personal and professional development for sales professionals and, I would argue, success-minded individuals. It begins with webinar one, the new sale. And I'm only going to touch on this one because it's so important. It's Gittimer giving you his very best ideas on what's now, what's new, what's next, how are sales being made, and how are we going to make sales over the next decade. And this is just the greatest building block, cornerstone content for what follows. And with that, you're going to get content on following up. You're going to get content on cold calling. You're going to get content on social selling, relationships, Managing millennials, you're going to get content on how to be a trusted advisor. We use those words, but nobody tells you what you're supposed to do to be that trusted advisor. You're also going to get some ideas about differentiation that come from Gittimer, who is somebody who's very, very creative in this space and has differentiated himself amazingly in this market. I would argue perhaps the best in the market when it comes to differentiating and brand building. You're also going to get a bonus webinar called Dominate 2016. And this is not just sales content. This is who do you need to be and what do you need to do if you're really going to win in this year. And this is content that will help you succeed every year. So you go to jeffreygittimer.com forward slash gold. You'll also find this in the show notes. And you pay monthly or you pay annually. If you pay monthly, it's 79 bucks a month for 12 webinars. You're making a 12-month commitment. And if you pay for the whole year at once, it's $500. You're going to save some money there. You're going to get exclusive access to a Facebook group, and you are going to develop yourself personally and professionally. But wait, there is more. If you use the word Anthony as the code when you sign up, you're going to get a massive discount on either one of these programs. So go out and visit my friend Jeffrey Gittimer at jeffreygittimer.com forward slash gold. Check out the webinars. Do invest in your personal and professional development. It's so important. You are the only asset that you have. You're the only resource that you have. And the bigger and stronger that resource and asset is for you, the more success you're going to have. Go check it out. Gittimer Gold, jeffreygittimer.com forward slash gold. When you get there, tell Git that Anthony sent you. I am Anthony Anarino, and you can find me at thesalesblog.com. When you go there, you're going to be assaulted by a pop-up banner when you try to click on something or when you try to leave, and that's so that I can get your first name and your email address. I'm going to send you every Sunday morning content that you can use in your sales game or your business game or your success game 
that's long form, actionable, something that you're going to be able to look at Monday morning and say, I've got ideas and I can get to work improving myself and my results. Also, go visit me at youtube.com forward slash Anarino. Do subscribe there where I'll send you video content, me talking into the camera, sharing ideas with you or interviewing other people. Thanks so much for being here. I'll see you next time right here in the arena.